Do you follow us in Israel? No? We were exactly a hundred strong. What a remarkable mission we had. What an amazing country. Words cannot adequately convey Israel. You simply have to go for yourself. I wish there was a way that I could persuade you to come with us, for those of you who have not been, and to participate in this life-altering, transformative journey because words describing it fall short. How do you describe a dream? How do you express a miracle? How do you put love into words? Is there one among us who ever composed a love letter and felt that we have captured our deepest sentiments? Now, I'm a partisan Jewish hack. It's my job to awaken your Jewish soul. So don't take my word for it. Talk with those who have just returned. Ask them to give you their honest opinion on whether it was worth the time and the money. Even my pre-mission assurances that the experience would be exceptional paled in comparison to the actual experience. Because words cannot accurately and adequately describe. As one of our congregants mentioned to me upon our return, you know, you assured me that the journey would penetrate deeply, but it was nothing in comparison with the real thing. That's the thing. Classrooms are inadequate to teach Israel. It's why the principal of our religious school accompanies every mission. What we can accomplish in eight days, we cannot accomplish in eight years in New York. Sermons are inadequate. It's why I accompany every mission. What I'm doing now, trying to express in words inexpressible emotions, is only an echo. It's not the music itself. We do not simply observe life, we experience life, we live life. Even thinking and reasoning comes more from the heart than from the soul, than from the head. It's why I could never support those in our community who make common cause with our enemies. My heart is not with them. My heart is with our people. Criticism is one thing, but I could never sympathize with an organization like the Boycott Promoting Jewish Voice for Peace, an ironic misnomer of a name, if there ever was one, that at its annual convention this week, I don't know if you saw this, this was greeted us upon our return, hosted, feted, and cheered a convicted Palestinian terrorist with Israeli blood on her hands in terms that would make Osama bin Laden blush. What happened to their Jewish neshama? Where did it go? Seems to have all dribbled away as they were passing it on. The flame of Judaism flickering in the night, its last embers dying by the campsite of anti-Zionist apologists. 
They no longer feel the pulse of our people. They can celebrate murderers because they convene in Chicago. The good parts of it. What Rasmio Day did in participating in an attack that killed Israelis is too remote for so-called Jewish voices for peace. Terror, murder, even occupation. These are only words stripped of real moral consequence, a type of moral preening, a shallow self-righteousness of those who are somewhere else when the bomb explodes, a kind of faux humanitarianism that tut tuts to the sight of dozens of children gassed to death just on the other side of Israel's border and goes right back to accusing Israel of war crimes. Willful denial of the basic fact that were it not for those 20-year-old tank commanders that we met on the Golan Heights, that very savagery would be visited on us as well. The only thing holding back the hordes is the commitment and courage of those young people to hold back the hordes. If they do this to one another, can you imagine what they would do to Jews if they only had the chance? I always try to keep an open mind. Self-criticism is even more important to me than criticism of others. I welcome the exquisite diversity in the Jewish community that produces an intellectual and political pluralism unmatched by any other people. Still, my heart is a heart of Jewish flesh, a heart moved by the miracle of collective Jewish life. I cannot relate to those whose hearts are hearts of stone, Jewishly cold, lifeless, and emptied of Jewish feelings. Linda Sarsour is their high priestess, the guardian of liberal purity. Who can accept Assad's vision of life? Who can support the vision of society peddled by Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, or even the Palestinian Authority as currently constituted? We met one of the chief spokesmen of the Palestinian Authority in Jericho, who, like the Jewish Voice for Peace, berated us with the same old, tired tropes about occupation. I wish there were peace. I still support a two-state solution. I asked the Palestinian representative whether, 24 years later, the Palestinians have any regrets. Do they feel that they, too, might have made some mistakes or done some things differently in retrospect. Of course, he refrained from this type of self-examination. He mumbled something about had Rabin lived, it all might have turned out differently. An improbable assertion that, of course, blamed the Israelis, not themselves. In Jericho, we were joined by a Palestinian journalist who writes for the New York Times. He's no Zionist. He wants to live in a Palestinian state coexisting with a Jewish state. 
After our meeting, he said to us that 24 years later, the Palestinian Authority has an interest in the status quo, in not resolving the political impasse. The Palestinian Authority is corrupt, he said, stashing away fortunes in foreign bank accounts and building palatial homes within eyesight of refugee camps, paid for by foreign money. He told us that none of these Palestinian leaders ever stepped foot in refugee camps. What kind of people, what kind of leadership would tolerate five generations of refugees and blame it all on the Jews? Would the Jews tolerate a leadership like that? That condones generation after generation of Jews living in squalor, forgotten by their own leadership that presumes to speak and act on their behalf? Would Americans tolerate this? Would the French, the British? In Tel Aviv, we met, we met with Payam Faili, an Iranian Muslim poet who was persecuted by Iran for being gay. He was detained three times by Iranian authorities. The last time, he was locked in a shipping container for 44 days. He realized that the next time the Iranian authorities come for him would be the last. In a convoluted journey, he ended up in Israel, where his latest book was translated into Hebrew. Payam told us that there is no place within a thousand miles like Tel Aviv. It's a miracle, he said, an oasis of decency within a desert of depravity. He could have sought asylum in the United States. But he chose to stay in Tel Aviv, where, as he described, everyone is free, and where the gay community is proud, accepted, and unafraid. On the Golan Heights, we ascended an observation point, allowing us to see deep into Syrian territory. You can hear the savagery. You can see the smoke. You can imagine the chemical attacks. And no one cares. This is the brutal truth. Six years of inhumanity, half a million killed, five million displaced, and no one really cares. It's not that we're bad people. We do care in the sense that we lament and perhaps even mourn. But we have our own lives to lead. We read the papers or watch the two-minute report on the nightly news, but we need to get to work or to sleep. This is basic human nature. We don't care enough to do something about it. Several dozen cruise missiles notwithstanding. We emerged from Yad Vashem 
the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, and we gathered in an adjacent courtyard to recite Kaddish for the six million. One of the questions the museum raises is, why didn't the Allies bomb Auschwitz? By 1944, everything was known about the death camps. We're part of this story. Rabbi Stephen Wise urged that very thing of President Roosevelt, open the doors to Jewish refugees and bomb the train tracks leading to the death camps or the camps themselves. The president's response was, we will not divert resources to help the Jews of Europe. The best thing for European Jews is for the Allies to win the war as quickly as possible. I shared with our group my view that one of the central lessons of Jewish existence is that powerlessness leads to catastrophe. A people can never put itself at the mercy of the marauding beast. It can never depend on outside protectors. They won't come. They won't come to save you. Powerlessness leads to more abuse, not less. It leads to the strong savaging the weak, especially in the Middle East. Open any newspaper on any, any given day and see that for yourself. It's one reason that I'm a Zionist. Zionism is about empowerment. To rewrite the Jewish story in the chapters of history, not as a victim, but as an agent of progress and social repair. It is far better to have power and to struggle with its proper use than to be powerless and at the mercy of the dark lords. Remember this at your Passover Seder next week. The story is about God taking us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. A mighty hand that wielded power against tyranny Power is needed to free the persecuted from the oppressor. The oppressor never voluntarily relinquishes control over you, but also an outstretched arm that offers peace, respect, tolerance, mutual understanding, love, dignity, and compromise. An outstretched arm that seeks to embrace. In Jerusalem, we went with the heroes of Israel, who described to us the heart-stopping work they do around the world in response to natural and human-made catastrophes. They're often among the first on the scene of earthquakes and hurricanes, and usually the best equipped medically. They're Haitian and Nepalese children named Israel in gratitude to the life-saving skills of Israeli doctors and first responders, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Israeli, and Palestinian alike. We will be working with Israel next month on our refugee mission to Germany and Greece.
there's still room for you, by the way. Consider coming with us. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I can't adequately describe it to you. But you will thank me later for cajoling you to come. Even the Israel Defense Forces helps wounded Syrians. We toured the Golan Heights with high-ranking military officer who was responsible for setting up a field hospital in the Syrian border. Hundreds of wounded Syrian civilians who were taught from childhood to hate Jews have been restored to health by Israeli doctors. This is what self-empowerment and self-determination can accomplish. The Jewish people, acting as a collectivity, can live out our destiny to be a force for good, compassion, pity, mercy, and dignity. To be conscious of ourselves, we must be conscious not only of our flaws, but also of our greatness. This is my life's mission, to convey to you in any way that I possibly can that our people is one of the great wonders of the world and its future is worth preserving and that future is in your hands. We visited Petra, the magical, ancient, Nabataean desert city in what is now Jordan. Even today, nearly 2,000 years later, Petra, Petra is magnificent. When you walk around, you can sense the magnificence of what the Nabataeans built. Our Jordanian guide conveyed the story of how Petra came to its end. I couldn't actually find historical documentation to this, but I'm going with this story anyway. He said, the Romans, that same military force that conquered Jerusalem, sacked the temple, killed tens of thousands of Jews and exiled most of the rest. The Roman military machine tried to conquer Petra. But it was guarded by steep ravines on all sides, it provided an almost impenetrable defense that even the mighty Romans couldn't penetrate. Until one day, they persuaded an insider to reveal to them the secret of Petra's water supply. The Romans then proceeded to cut off Petra's water, and within three months, they surrendered without a fight. What happened to the Jews happened to the Nabataeans. They fell to the Romans and were killed and exiled. Except here's the thing. There are no Nabataeans today. The hills of Petra are stunning. The Nabataeans must have been immensely powerful and wealthy to have had the leisure time enabling, enabling them to develop their extraordinary skills of carving into the limestone of their city this magnificent 
homage to their gods. In its day, it must have been indescribably awe-inspiring. Even today, the sight of those ancient works buckle the knees. But there are no Nabataeans today. There are no ancient Romans today. There are no ancient Egyptians today. There are no ancient Persians today. There are no ancient Greeks today. There are no Babylonians today. There are no Edomites today. There are no Ammonites today. There are no Assyrians today. There are no Midianites today. There are no Canaanites today. There are Jews today. There are Jews today because we spent our energies carving into our hearts, not into the mountains. Homage to God. And even during the long exile, we never forgot Torah, never forgot the land of Israel, and never forgot Jerusalem. In the words of the psalmist exiled to Babylon 2,500 years ago, who knew he would never see the land again, but still retained hope for future generations. Imeshkachech Yerushalayim, tishkach yemini. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not elevate Jerusalem above my highest joys. I've asked Cantor Singer to lead us in the chanting of this psalm in the special melody that we chant on Yom Kippur afternoon. Yeah. 